0: If you look at the title for this morning's lesson it's titled Losing My Religion, The Identity of God's People. Back in 1991, there was a song released by the band R.E.M. Some of you may know that song. It's called Losing My Religion. I was actually driving into work this week, uh, reliving my glory days, singing along to that song. And I uh, I was actually singing that song throughout the day uh, and then I had it on my mind quite a bit because as I was singing that song along, I began to read some articles on social media. Uh, the articles showed actually that many are losing their religion or are in danger of losing their religion. Now, for some people, losing their religion is a really good thing. And that's because for many people, the religion that they are a part of is not what we find representative Uh, with the Bible but for other people losing their religion would actually be disastrous now you may be asking what exactly were you reading this week as you were singing that song in your mind losing my religion well this week many of you probably saw the article where the Pope had actually came out and he was endorsing same-sex civil unions uh, which clearly the Bible condemns as fornication and as sin and as I continued to read there were a number of different groups within the Catholic Church and also those outside the Catholic Church some were claiming this is long overdue because uh, God's teaching and God's people have really become outdated. Now I use that word very loosely God's people because that's what I found in the article. But interestingly there were those that actually opposed what he was promoting this idea of same-sex civil unions Uh, and the reason they were opposed to that was because it clearly contradicts what we find in our Bible. Now Most of us know that, in fact, the majority of the United States uh, identifies as God's people. And yet we believe, I'm using this as we find in the article, yet we believe different things and we worship in different ways, some not worshiping at all. And based off of the articles that I continued to read as I was thinking about what the Pope had said, I began to look into some more statistics. And here's here's what I found. Did you know that 32%... Of those raised Catholic or those uh, who were who grew up in that denominational group, they've actually left the Catholic faith, or are classified as another part of a religious group, or they're unaffiliated altogether. Now it's interesting that that statistic comes out because Thursday night when I was working over, I was uh, standing at a press talking to a guy, and come to find out, uh, he was Catholic, uh, and he no longer attends the Catholic church. He said, "I'm Catholic, but I don't attend anywhere." And so I began to talk with him about the very fact that I'm, and I mentioned this statistic to him, I'm one of those 32% that left my religion. I lost my religion. And I'll address that here in a second. But 32% of Catholics are losing their religion. They're walking away from it. Uh, They're either not going anywhere or they're going somewhere else. I continued to notice that 13% of Protestants have become unaffiliated with any specific group. What I mean is, is they don't worship anywhere at all or 15% of the Protestants that I saw in the poll there had switched over to some other denominational group. I just found out yesterday, did you guys see where our president, who was raised Presbyterian, said he's now non-denominational. So he falls into this category. He's one of those who has, he's lost his religion. He left what he grew up as, as a Presbyterian, and now he's become non-denominational. And then I found this one. Another recent study, says that 2,400 members of the Churches of Christ are leaving per month. 2,400 members of the Churches of Christ are leaving per month. And the study said that from 2016 to 2019 the church has lost about 5.6 percent of their members. What happened? They're losing their religion. They're walking away from it. And so as I began to think about this, whether you're Catholic, whether you're Protestant, whether you consider yourself non-denominational or whether you even consider yourself to be a member of the church of christ many are losing their religion now with that being said we need to point this out god's people exist and yet we are in a we're in serious danger of losing our religion on a personal level how many of you guys here know somebody who is no longer a christian they've lost their religion you might ask them what they are and they may claim to be uh, a part of another group but there's no doubt that they have left the faith. They have lost their religion. Now, here's a question we have to ask, not only for ourselves, but for anybody watching this online. How exactly can I know the identity of God's people so that I don't lose my religion? That, that is a serious question that all of us need to ask. Or for those who might be watching this who want to leave denominationalism uh, and they're looking to be just a Christian, what I mean is... is They've just obeyed the gospel and that's all they are, not part of any type of a man's group. The question they have to ask is, is what exactly is true religion according to the Bible? And I think there are many of us here who've, who've had to ask that question as we were trying to figure this out. And so for us to get an understanding of this and so for us to protect ourselves from losing our religion, we've got to go back to the very beginning and start with the Old Testament. Going over to Deuteronomy 14 and then after this we'll go to Deuteronomy 28. God had demanded from the very beginning His people in in the Old Testament to be very different than the world. Follow along in Deuteronomy 14 verse 2. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto Himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. Well, here's a question we need to ask. What exactly is it that made them holy? What is it that made these people Peculiar. Well, let's go on over to Deuteronomy 28 verse 9 and we will begin to get an understanding. And understanding this also gives us the basis as we continue to move forward uh, and, and get an understanding about God's people today. Deuteronomy 28 9. Notice what he tells, tells him: The Lord shall establish thee and holy people unto himself as he hath sworn unto thee. Notice this big word here. If... Thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God and walk in His ways. Now, here's the the part about that big word, if. If they wouldn't keep His commandments, these Jews were going to be just like everybody else in the world. And there were Jews that weren't faithful anymore. Many of them had lost their religion. But he says, if you will keep my commandments, you're going to be be peculiar. Why were they peculiar? Why were they different than everyone around them? Well, very simple. They kept the Lord's commandments. It made them a set-apart people. And so just as we realize this in the Old Testament, then, we realize that God today has done the very same thing, and he demands to have a holy people today. Go on over to 1 Peter chapter 2. And you're really going to find the very same wording that we just found in Deuteronomy. 1 Peter 2, starting in, or there in verse 9. He says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a and holy nation. He's talking about Christians here a peculiar people. That's exactly what we found in Deuteronomy 14.2. Right? It's the same thing that we, we see in the Old Testament. He goes on, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now that marvelous, marvelous light, I didn't write any notes down here, but go ahead and jot down uh, 1 John uh, 1 verses 6-9 through 9, because that marvelous light he's talking about there is walking in the light, That's, that means walking according to truth there in 1 John 1 verse 6. And so what he's explaining here is, is the reason we're peculiar as God's people today is just like those in the Old Testament. It's because we keep the Lord's commandments. If we wouldn't keep the Lord's commandments, we'd be just like everybody else in the world. right? We wouldn't be peculiar. So for those who are watching this today and really for us as we come back to reestablish what many of us already know, who are these peculiar people today? What can we know about them? And this is a valid thing to, one, cover repeatedly, and two, to ask, especially for those that may be watching this, because we have so many different religious groups today, and yet we know that they don't all teach the same thing. We know that they don't all worship in the same way. We know that they, in many, many cases, don't match what we find in our scriptures. And so it's, it's a valid question. I mean, who are these peculiar people? We saw who they were in the Old Testament, and we saw what the New Testament says about the Christians at that point. Who are they today? Now, clearly we've already established the fact, and I'm not going to go back and give any more verses. God's always had a peculiar people, uh, and He considered His people uh, to be set apart in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So let's get this basic understanding, and we're going to go back and do it again in a very systematic way. God's always demanded obedience from His people. Let's go back again to the patriarchal age. Now, we could have picked a number of accounts, but this one's easy because I can use both old and new. Let's look at Noah real quick. Now, I wish we had time to go back and cover the account with Noah. We know that Noah was commanded to build an ark. Listen to Genesis 6.22, though, as we learn about Noah. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Now, we've already showed the fact that if we would do all of the commands of God, we'll be a peculiar people. That's why Noah here was peculiar. As a matter of fact, we realize he was only one of eight saved. They were the peculiar ones. The ones that weren't saved, the rest of the world, uh, they weren't doing God's will. Now notice 2 Peter 2.5 where we get confirmation. It says, "...and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly." Now why did I put those two verses together? The Bible clearly teaches us that the faithful patriarchs were saved. And we see what, required, what was required of Noah to be faithful. He had to do all that the Lord had commanded him. It wasn't just for the patriarchs. We see the same thing when we begin to look at the Mosaic Age or the, the uh, dispensation under the law of Moses. Go over to Exodus 19.5. Again, we looked at this passage, but we're going to tie it in with another one. Now, therefore... If ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Alright, so there's a covenant here, but here's what's interesting. Being God's people has always come with a promise. Okay. I want you to go on over to Deuteronomy 11:26 26-28. Deuteronomy 11:26 26-28. Notice there's a covenant between these people and God, and that covenant is based on a promise. It says, "...behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse, a blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, and a curse if you will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside out of the way which I command you this day, to go after other gods which ye have not known." What was promised of the Jews is the very same thing taught for and promised for Christians today. I'm going to go on over to John 12, 48, and look at Jesus' words here. But Jesus is, in essence, really saying the exact same thing we find there in Deuteronomy 11. Jesus says, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. I'm going to come back to that word, judgeth, in a minute. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. All right, we're going to be judged according to the word, but what can we understand about this judging? Well, we go back to Deuteronomy. The exact same result in Deuteronomy 11 is what we find Jesus teaching. There's a blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord. There's going to be a curse if you will not obey the commandments. And, and Jesus very clearly talks about His Word being the basis for that judgment. All right. Now that we've started to address the Christian age, go on over to Matthew 7:21 through 23, because we've already seen the basis for what would allow us to be considered righteous and or unrighteous. And that's certainly something we want to know if we don't want to lose our religion or be found in the wrong religion. So let's begin to get a little more understanding about the Christian age because that's what we live under today. It is the last age and the only age that will be in place until Jesus comes back. And notice what he says here as we get more really reconfirmation of what we've already seen. Matthew 7 starting in verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. There are a lot of people today who are talking about being followers of the Lord today, aren't there? Notice what he says. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Let me pause. So here's what we can infer. Those that are saying, Lord, Lord, but not doing God's will, they're not going to be in heaven. Okay, I know that comes across as harsh, uh, but again, that's, that's what we find. Verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out demons, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity or sin. Why are we peculiar people? Well, because we do the will of the Father. Uh, Everybody else is just in sin. Now again, I know that comes across as harsh... Uh, but what we're doing is, is we're really just looking at the reality of the Scriptures and getting an understanding of the identity of God's people. Jesus further teaches in John 14, 15, If ye love me, keep my commandments. L- let me say this, and I'm going to infer again. If people intentionally are not keeping God's commandments, I have to, I have to infer that they don't really love the Lord. Uh, I, I don't really know another way to put it. And we'll touch on this in a minute. Let's not take away from the fact that there are people who just don't know. And and many of us know those people. I'm in contact with them on a daily basis, and I try to discuss these things with them. And I find time and time again that for the majority of the world around me, it's not sheer opposition and willful disobedience. They just don't know. And, guys, what a sad fact that is. Go on over to 1 John 2. Let's look at verse 3 through 5, because... Jesus taught many times that to do His will was to keep His commandments, and to not do His will is sin, and that's the same thing we find being taught by the Apostle John. Notice what he writes there in 1 John 2, starting in verse 3. And hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He that saith, I know Him, and keepeth not His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth His word in him verily is the love of God perfected, Hereby know we that we are in him. I can know if I'm losing my religion. And I can know if I'm even, in fact, in the correct religion. How? Well, it's pretty simple. He says, go back and and check to see whether or not you're keeping my commandments. Uh, And certainly that would be important for whether you're claiming to be a Christian and you're going to some denominational group, or whether you're a member of the Church of Christ. In both cases, we need to go back and ask ourselves, am I keeping his commandments? commandments. Jesus actually says in Revelation 22, 14, blessed are they that do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Well, again, we get the understanding here that if you're not following the will of God, if you're not following his commandments, you're not going to be one of those that will enter in through the gates. Now, the Bible clearly teaches, as we've already noticed throughout the Old Testament into uh, from the patriarchal age into the law of Moses, into the Christian dispensation, that God has always had a select group of people that were His. Uh, and the fact that they were peculiar was seen by the very fact that they were obedient to His word. So here's what we have to ask. And, and this really what was on my mind as I, as I read what the Pope said and I, I thought about that religious group, the the Catholics, and then as I began to read articles and I began to look at a number of different religious groups, Again, noting that many of them were losing their faith, walking away from the faith that they were in. The question we really need to be asking is this. I mean, who can rightly today even identify as one of God's people? Again, the statistics show that 75% of those within the United States claim to be Christians. Well, what what does that include? The word today is used much different than the Bible. Today, that would include groups such as the Baptists. The, I'm just going to name groups, not to offend anybody, but to help get an understanding. The Baptists, the Methodists, the Catholics, the Pentecostals, the Seventh-day Adventists, um, well, uh, Nazareans, the Berean congregations. You name any of these denominational groups you can think of. I, I guess some would even put in Mormons. Uh, but you name any of these, these are summed up as people who are Christians. That's how we use the word today and 75% of the United States claims to be or to identify as one of God's people but here's what I would encourage those in all of those groups and even within the churches of Christ is on over to Matthew 16 18 because we need to go back and remember and consider the claim made by Christ and that was that he was going to establish his church now we've already shown there is a plethora of churches out there But Jesus said He would establish His church. And you guys are, most of you are very familiar with this. Matthew 16, 18, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, singular, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. All right. Jesus came to establish only one church made up of one people. Now that was prophesied. This is not one church with subgroups of many churches. I know that's what we have today, but that's not what we find in the Bible. Jesus says he's going to build this one church which had been prophesied. And so now I want you to go on back to Joel chapter 2. And anytime you read Jesus talking about the church, you should immediately think of Joel 2 and Isaiah 2. Go on over to Joel 2, because Isaiah I mean Joel and Isaiah, we'll look at Isaiah in a minute, Joel had prophesied that deliverance was going to come when the Holy Spirit was poured out from heaven. And Joel was pointing to the fact that the church was going to be established. Joel 2, starting in verse 28. He says, "...and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my Spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke." The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Let me pause for a second. this isn't in your notes. Write down Acts 2 verse 21. Peter says the very same thing as he refers back to Joel. Let me go on. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance. All right, this is going to take place in Jerusalem. As the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. The remnant's going to be those Jews that are going to obey the gospel. This is going to occur over in Acts 2, 1 through 4. I'll show you that in just a minute, but I'm, I'm bringing to mind the fact that Joel prophesied there was going to be this church that would start, and that's what Jesus said. Jesus says he's going to establish his church. Now again, Joel wasn't the only one that prophesied about the establishment of the church. We know that Isaiah over in Isaiah 2 uh, said the, the Lord's house was going to be established in the top of the mountains. That's in Jerusalem, the very same thing that Joel actually says. So let's get an understanding based on what Isaiah teaches. He gives us some timing here and location again. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. Right? That's going to be both Jew and Gentile coming into this body. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, and He will teach us of His ways, and we will walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Right? That's where the church is going to start. That's where the word is going to start to go out. That's where we're going to actually learn about the religion, the faith, that would replace Judaism. What do we learn from... From our New Testament, well, the New Testament clarifies what this prophesied house was and is today. All right, We can look at the Old Testament, and then we can go look at the New Testament. What's he talking about? And we can know from Paul's writing that the house of God, which is being spoken of here, is today the church. Listen to 1 Timothy 3.15. Paul writes, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. That's what we just saw being discussed over in Isaiah. He said... Uh, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. All right, the house of God is the church of the living God. All right, the house of God was established in Jerusalem. This house of God is the church. And so we know from from just looking at the scriptures, we know where it began and we know when it began. All right, we read specifically from Luke that on the day of Pentecost, that's actually 50 days from the crucifixion that the Holy Spirit was sent from heaven. And Peter said that this was actually the prophecy uh, of Joel being fulfilled. So let's go on over to Acts 2, verses 1 through 4. Because a lot of people go back and they look at the Old Testament, they read these passages, and then they don't understand that they actually came into effect. Notice what we find there in Acts 2, verse 1 through 4. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, remember again that it's 50 days from the crucifixion of Christ, they were all with one accord. Who is that? Well, if you look back in the very last uh, verse of Acts chapter 1, and you'll notice here, this is the apostles. They're all together in one place. He says, and, "...and they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting." And this is again the apostles. "...and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit." and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Peter tries to explain to the crowd what is going on, and he says what you're witnessing here is what Joel was talking about. Okay. Now going over to Acts 2 verse 14. But Peter standing up with the eleven, remember again I told you this is for the apostles here, People teach this is the 120. They teach this is for everyone. This is the apostles here. But Peter, standing up with the 11, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwelt at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words, for these, these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. It's 9 a.m. in the morning. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Joel talked about the church being established. They're in Jerusalem. The same thing Isaiah said was going to happen. And Peter says, this is that. What you read from Joel, that's what you're seeing take place right now. And so we know that the church Jesus promised to build was built there on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. Why do I bring that up? Well, because any church that wasn't started on that day or doesn't teach exactly what that body taught uh, doesn't meet the fulfillment of these prophecies regarding the church uh, that is revealed in the Bible. Quite often when I talk with Catholics and quite often I see on their websites and quite often in their articles, and I was actually taught this growing up, uh, the Catholics teach that they are the true church. Guys, do you know where the Catholic Church started and where it is now? Rome. Is that what, is that what Joel taught? Is that what Isaiah taught? No. They taught it was going to start in Jerusalem. Why do we even have denominationalism? Well, the Catholic Church, which started in Rome, then had groups that rebelled against the Catholic Church, started denominational groups, and they started all in different locations, none of which were Jerusalem, and today we have all this religious nonsense around us and what people don't see is is the church started in Jerusalem and everything after that started somewhere else. That should help give clarification to what the church is and what Jesus was talking about. Now, Here's a question we got to ask, and again, we've seen through the Scriptures, but when was the church established, and how exactly are those described who entered into it? Well, we go back to the account there with Peter, when we see the church being established, and Peter was asked on that occasion with the Jews in the crowd what they needed to do to receive forgiveness. And here's the thing about the Jews. They already believed in God, and they had even come to the realization that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, and in fact, they took part in having Him killed, Right? So not only do they believe in God, they now believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Uh, And they just heard the message being preached. They realize they need to repent of their sins. And so they're asking, what do we do now that we're in this state? And again, notice the response from Peter. Acts 2 verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. They got an understanding now. And they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, or immersed in water, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, that's because they were in a sinful state, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what do we learn from those people in the crowd? They've got an understanding now that there's something they need to do. They were moved by their faith to be obedient. Let me pause for a minute. What did we find out, if we go all the way back to the beginning of this lesson, what did we find out about those who always wanted to be God's people Or what did God require of them? God always required them to be a peculiar people and for them to be obedient. What do we find here in the crowd? We find people that are going to become peculiar people as part of God's uh, body today, or at least at that time, replacing Judaism, and it's because they wanted to be obedient. Listen to Acts 2.41. Then they that gladly received His word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Why is that important? We'll go on down to verse 47 there of Acts chapter 2. "...praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved." Again, that one church that Jesus promised He would build, Matthew 16, 18. You find people who are hearing the Word of God, they're believing it, they're actually obeying the gospel. Because they obeyed the gospel, they became peculiar people and were added to the one body. So here we're told those being saved added by the Lord Himself to His church. That was the church Jesus promised to build, uh, and that was the church which was established there on that day. So here's the question again, which church was it? What I mean today in today's language is this, what, what religion was it? I think that's how most people would probably word it. Well clearly the Bible says that the saved were added to the church, therefore all the saved were added to the same church by the Lord Himself." So again, which church were they being added to in the first century? Let me ask you a question before I go any further. Has the Word of God changed since the first century? The answer clearly is no, and since the Word of God has not changed, God still adds the saved to the same church that they were being added to in the first century. The church hasn't changed, neither has the Word of God changed. And God has not changed. He's still adding those same saved people today to that same saved body. Now, I know that's confusing for many people who might be watching this online because they may be saying, well, wait a minute. I, I, I'm not quite sure where to go or I'm not quite sure which is the right body because there again is so many different bodies. Which, which body again is this? Well, to figure that out, you need to go back and compare all of the names of congregations today you need to compare all of the ways in which they worship and all of the dates in which they were established uh, and you need to compare all of that to the bible Uh, i call it the bubble test i don't actually know what else it is but start writing down every religious group you can find on a piece of paper and then begin to go look at what they teach and compare it to the bible if you find something they teach that's not found in the bible or contradicts it mark it off that's, that's what I did. I, I, don't, I didn't know what to call it at that point, but that's what we did. We began to work through the bodies, and that's how I often will teach people today uh, because we just begin to look at it. And if you do that, when you get done, there's only going to be one religious body on that piece of paper. Which one is it? I guarantee you it will be the Church of Christ. God had an awful lot of things to say about the body that His Son was going to die for. Again, it is called the body of Christ, Colossians 1.18. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. Now, I agree with you again today, there are many churches, but there are many churches where Christ does not have the preeminence. What I mean is, is men set up their own laws, they teach their own things. Christ, they say they follow Christ, but Christ isn't the one that is preeminent. Men are the ones that are preeminent within those congregations. Jesus literally calls that, this isn't in your notes, He literally calls that vain worship, Matthew 15, 9, because they're teaching the doctrines of the commandments of men. Jesus is the one to have the preeminence which means we only teach those things that Jesus taught and or those appointed by Jesus taught. What I'm talking about is is we only teach what is inspired from the scriptures. That's going to help you figure out what body you need to be a part of. Now, contrary again to today's popular thought, there's just one body. Going on over to Ephesians four four, a passage you're all familiar with. Go ahead, and I think I just put down Ephesians four four, but go ahead and write down Ephesians four verses five through six. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. If you go on there in verse five, he then talks about there being one faith. Okay, again, people who are confused today, let's get this now. There's just one church. There's just one. Faith. And when you become a Christian, you're added to that one body. Why? Because Jesus is only going to be the Savior of one body. He's not going to be the Savior of a body made up of subgroups. Again, listen to Ephesians 5.23. For the husband is the head of the wife. I only have one wife. Even as Christ is the head of the church. He only has one church. And he is the Savior of the body. He's the Savior of that body. That one body that he would establish. Since Jesus is the Savior of the body and the body is the church, he's the Savior of the church. But which one? Again, a, a valid question. Well, it's the group of people today uh, who are those who are obedient to the Word of God. Uh, how would you know what that is? Well, again, go back to Ephesians 4, 5 and look at that one faith. What's our one faith? That's what's described in our New Testament, right? Right. And I guarantee you, I want to die within that body. I don't want to lose my religion and go into something else. And for those who want to be Christians, uh, you need to have an understanding of what that one body is. The ones that have been called out of darkness and have obeyed the gospel being added to the church, these are the ones who have been added to the Lord's house. What I mean is, is they're part of the Lord's family. They've been baptized into the body. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, right, that doesn't matter. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you obey the same gospel as everybody else, and that puts you into the same body. Let me pause again for a second. Have you noticed that all the different religious groups have different ways of, of, according to them, obeying the gospel? Some say you need to be uh, baptized. Some say you need to be sprinkled. Some say you need to be poured. Some say you just need to do faith only. And some say it doesn't really matter at all. Here what we learn is, is we are all baptized into one body. That is the last culminating act of obeying the gospel. It puts you into the only one body, the only one house of God, the one and only church. He goes on, whether we be bond or free and have been all made to drink into one spirit. How is that? Well, there's only one Holy Spirit, that only one Holy Spirit revealed to us only one inspired word. And so, these have been obedient, and they've been added to the church. They were baptized into the one body. They were baptized into Christ, and this made them children in God's family. Listen to Galatians 3, 26 and 27. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Some would say, see right there, that's all you need. Keep reading. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I can't get into Christ's family God's family, or put on Christ without being baptized into it. So then that leads us to another question. And the question is relevant for today. And it's what I thought about as I was reading a number of these articles about why people uh, were in other religious groups or why they were leaving those religious groups and even in the article of why are people leaving the churches of Christ? Why are they losing their religion? Why are some people in other religious groups or unfaithful or not in any group at all? That's a good question. Well, given the Bible fact that shows clearly and concisely that there is only one place of salvation, why do some people go to other religious groups? Why do they not go to any group? Or why do they become unfaithful when they were once a faithful Christian? Let me go back to the initial statement I made earlier. I have found quite often, and I think it's probably the prevalent account, that the majority of people I come into contact do it out of sheer ignorance. I I just mean they've never been taught, they've never been taught correctly. Many of us get that if we grew up outside of the church. Uh, We just didn't know. We thought we were doing right, and nobody had really told us. That's really, I think, the, the main reason. And as I think back to that gentleman that I was sitting there working with Thursday evening as he was running the press, and I got him to talk about religious things pretty quick and found out he had been raised Catholic, and I said... Are you a practicing Catholic? And he said, No, I'm, I'm Catholic, but I don't go to church anymore. And so I began to ask, you know, Do you believe what the Catholics teach? And it's very interesting to me that as I talk to him, and he's a, he's a very good person. I like him. I like him, but he's never, ever been taught the gospel, and he has no understanding about what it is to be one of God's people. He believes that he is. But here's what's interesting he told me that his dad hadn't gone to church in a number of years, and when his dad got sick, they called in the priest to do you guys have ever heard of, giving last rites. And he said, don't you think that's kind of unusual, kind of hypocritical, to not have gone to church in all of this time, and then you call the priest in right when you're dying? Even he gets it logically. But the majority of people I come into contact with, they do it just out of sheer ignorance. Another reason is there are some who do know the truth. They won't obey it, and that's fear. They don't want to be put out of their current places of worship. Going over to John 12, verses 42 through 43... And then I'll put this in a logical sense, so it makes in a logical way, so it makes sense. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers, also many believed on him. All right, you got Jews believing on Jesus. You'd think that that would be enough for them to obey the gospel, right? But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. Well, why not? Lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. You can't attend today a faith-only congregation and teach the truth on the necessity of baptism. You can't go out and teach that there's just one church. You can't teach that there's just one faith. You can't teach that uh, the the miraculous has ceased. You can't go teach that there's not some premillennial reign with Christ on earth. You can't go teach any of that and not think for a second that they're not going to put you out of that congregation. So even if you did know the truth, the congregation you currently attend most likely they'd have you leave. Uh, I personally know a gentleman. He's a he's a uh, a member of the church of christ he was raised catholic like myself he had he had a number of studies with a gospel preacher he wrote down all the questions all the answers made sense he took it to the priest and he said can you answer these questions for me of course he hadn't told him the questions and the priest said sure i can and he began to go through them the ones that the gospel preacher gave book chapter and verse four and he began to read them and you know what the priest said get up and leave right now because we don't need any of that within this why is that Because the Catholic Church tells you they're the one in authority. The priest is the one in authority there in the local congregation. And you begin to look at the Word of God as being authoritative. They're going to put you out of the building, just like what was going to happen to these Jews here. Some people don't become unfaithful or don't obey the gospel out of sheer ignorance or out of fear. Some actually become unfaithful or refuse to obey the gospel to satisfy their families at all costs. Uh, what I mean is is they'll overlook sin or they'll allow that sin to take place or the very fact that they just want to keep peace to keep them from obeying the gospel or following Christ. Listen to Matthew 10, 37 through 38. And I did have an interesting thought about this as I thought about it throughout the week. Matthew 10:37 through 38. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. You guys know that sometimes our family sins, sometimes our friends sin, and oftentimes they want us to accept it or to go along with it. And there's got to be a dividing line. But here's what I actually thought. I want you guys to listen very close to this. In the majority of accounts that I can think of where people are involved in sin and they want us to accept it or go along with it, In the majority of cases I can think of, they often play the victim's card. Let me me just give you a couple of examples. When you begin to talk about the fact that people should not be involved in abortion, they will begin to play the victim's card. You are so hateful to make a stance like that to take away my personal right, right? They're playing the victim card. How about uh, homosexual relationships? You begin to condemn homosexuality, what are they going to do? They're going to make you out to be the bad guy. They're going to play the victim card. You begin to talk about the fact that, that let's say you address somebody who has a problem with alcoholism and you begin to tell them that they need to, they need to quit doing that they need to follow the Word of God. What are they going to say? I was born like this. Who, is it, who are you to say that this is my problem? I wasn't, it's not like I want to be this way. They're playing the victim card. In almost every example I can find where somebody's involved in sin and they want you to accept it or you to go along with it, I'm telling you right now, they will play the victim card, and they will make you out to be the bad guy. And you know what you have to understand? You're not the bad guy. You are the one who is choosing to give up father or mother, to give up brother or sister, to give up your friends. And is that a hard decision? Absolutely it is. The point is this, many people don't know the identity of God's people, and many are willing to give up that identity. They are willing to lose their religion. But as I thought about this, here's my question for those that might be watching this. If you are not a member of the Church of Christ, are you willing to lose whatever religion it is that you're a part of currently so that you can identify as one of God's people? I was raised Catholic, and then I went to a community church. And guess what I had to do to identify as one of God's people? I had to lose my religion. Now, for those who are Christians... Let me say this, are you safeguarding yourself so that you will not lose your religion? That really, again, and I think the majority of every sermon is this. How do we draw people to Christ and how do we get them to become Christians? In many accounts, they've got to lose their religion. And what can we do to make sure that we and those that we love within the congregation do not become unfaithful or lose their religion? That's, in essence, what the Christian does every day. And that's really what I'm trying to explain to you now. We need to have an understanding of who God's people are so that we don't lose our religion. If you're here, my concern is is that one, you've either obeyed the gospel or two, that you're faithful. And the same for those that might be watching this. Obeying the gospel is not hard. You simply need to hear the word of God. You need to have an understanding of who Christ was, that He was the Messiah. You need to have an understanding of the church. You need to have an understanding of the consequence of sin. And so you need to have heard the word. You need to believe that Jesus was the Messiah or you'll die in your sins, John 8, 24. You need to have faith, Hebrews 11:6. You need to repent of your sins, Luke 13, 3 through 5. You need to confess Christ, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And then you need to be immersed in water for the remission of sins, Mark 16, 15 and 16. I already gave you a number of verses earlier. When you do that, the Lord will add you to the church. And then you need to be faithful. Write down Revelation 2:10, 10, 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. What I'm in essence saying is, is don't lose your religion. Be faithful. If you're here and there's a way we can help you in any way, whether it's to obey the gospel or if we can pray on your behalf, you can come forward and make that need known as we are led in the song of invitation.